Hello everyone and welcome to Final Show. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've just got a few pre-show notes for you. First of all, I want to let everybody know that our addresses have changed. Uh, our Twitch channel has changed from Sinstaku to twitch.tv slash finalshowfilms, and our YouTube channel has also changed to youtube.com slash finalshowfilms. Next, we want to thank our $20 tier supporters on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash films, by the way, if you want to go throw a couple bucks our way. That's going to be Cat Waterflame, Antitonic, Samantha Bates, and Maureen Monty. Thank you guys for that. Also, our website is in the process of getting updated. So go take a look at finalshowfilms.com. We've got Mara and Jeremy are working on updating all of our stuff there, making it look nice and like a modern website, and frankly, they know what they're doing far better than I or Austin ever did, so if you want to check out the things that are changing over there, you go do that. Follow us on Twitter, at Final Show Films, for updates uh, for all future things, including things that are going on with our website, and going on with the Patreon page, and things that are going on live as we stream them, uh, as well as our podcasts and everything else, so thank you very much for watching, y'all have a good day. Everybody and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 44, where we talk about Critical Role, episode 33, Return to Vasselheim. I think One that's correct. We'll that. I think so. One of these days we'll get that. We'll we'll get that. To... No, we won't. I don't know how we would even do that. We would have to. We would have to have an episode talking about uh, some form of ancillary Critical Role content that doesn't actually directly correlate to an episode. Like and one then of the it battle would... royales. Yeah. And then it would no no because we're behind so that wouldn't even well yeah no because then that would be if we're behind so if they skip no, an the... episode. Hi guys, we haven't even made it through the introductions and we've already digressed. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I'm John at Johnny Bates I'm on Twitter. So proud of us. <laughs> I'm John at Johnny Bates on Twitter. Uh, joining me today is Jeremy. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm at jthomas411 Mania on Twitter. And Jack. Hey, everybody. I'm Jack. I'm at AltF4Gamers on Twitter. And uh, as I said, we're talking about Return to Vasselheim start this week, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Towson Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxel, Don, Marisha Ray as Keyleth, Sam Regal as Scanlon, Travis Willingham as Grog, Matthew Mercer as Dungeon Master, and guesting Will Friedell as Kashaw Vesh, and Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Zara Hydras. Uh, so yes. What happened last time on Critical Role? Because it's been a while. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit. It's been, it's been, it's been a minute. I have to. I just have to say, I'm super excited about this because I wrote up my section like three weeks ago. <laughs> And I'm going to be flat honest with you. I did not watch since. I watched it fully at that point. I have not watched since. It's okay. I didn't write anything down, but I watched my section twice. <laughs> I rewatched the last time. Uh, tonight. Okay. <laughs> I rewatched mine tonight as well. So we'll be, we'll be good. And we'll be good. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. Anyway. I was hoping you were going to say six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> So but last time on Critical Role, there were dragons and shit. Yes, last time on Critical Role, the party uh, had finished fleeing from uh, the Chroma Conclave, which had crashed down into Amon, 
uh, Western was under attack. Uh, Grayskull Keep was under attack. Shit was fucked and people were dying, and they fled from they fled from Grayskull Keep to Whitestone. Uh, left a bunch of people there, and then went from Whitestone to Vasselheim, which is where we pick up with her turn to Vasselheim. Uh, the party gets back to Vasselheim for the first time in quite a while, uh, 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 and headed straight for the Slayer's take first off, uh, where they were contemplating their next move and try and waiting for Vanessa Sindrial, the uh, Huntmaster of the Slayer's take, to return because she was apparently out on a mission, and uh, the only person the, there were just a few members of the Slayer's take left, as well as her husband Merton. Yeah, husband Merton. 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 Um. The party sits around, shoot shit for a little bit, and then the doors slam open and Vanessa Cinderella is there, along with Zara and Kashaw, as we get our guest characters in at the table at this point. Um, I don't know if there's anything any of you want to talk about regarding recurring guest characters before I continue on, but... Well, I mean, as far I support as... Uh, yeah, no, like, well, and... Uh, <laughs> Strong stance there, Jeremy. <laughs> Thank you. I, su- I support returning guest characters. And, and <laughs> I love the concept of guest characters because, <clears throat> especially for things like this, when you have a long-form narrative um, with a consistent storyline that features from episode to episode and is the common thread tying everything together guest characters are an excellent way to a add something kind of new and fresh to the existing cast who you know by this point uh pretty much everybody has has probably comfortable with the main cast and how they how they interact and what sort of things you can expect from everybody um it gives the existing cast something new to play off of. It gives the audience something new to interact with and consume. Um, and it allows for exploration of different dynamics w- between individuals, both with and adjacent to these new characters that are being introduced, at least for a short time. Um, it's also sometimes a very good way to figure out what does and doesn't work and which is where you start getting into things where guest characters become part of the main cast on occasion not here but you know um, in in other properties that sort of thing has been known to happen from time to time (laughs) Spike looking at you right um So yeah, I, I I love a good guest character. And and it's for me especially it's because you get the novelty of something new and if you like it, you can keep it going most of the time and if it doesn't work, well, you know, it's 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 not a huge investment and you haven't necessarily potentially shot your narrative in the face. Yeah. And- what a- <clears throat> Sorry, go Jeremy. Oh no, that's okay. What, I was gonna say what I appreciate most about about guest characters is as a narrative tool. Um, I mean, as presumably you bring characters back because they're characters that the audience likes. You don't bring back the character that nobody liked unless you're like I don't George know. Lucas. George Lucas. Vince, Vince McMahon. 
<laughs> Vince McMahon. Um, <laughs> okay, there are several examples of times where they ha that has happened. But you shouldn't, as a rule, unless you have a very good reason. Uh -huh. um, Vince McMahon does not have a very good reason. <laughs> Vince um, McMahon's reason is, they're so vascular. <laughs> Vince McMahon's reason is the same reason that I explained to, to Aaron recently, uh, uh, the, the wrestling management joke, which is why? Because fuck you, that's why. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to see him wrestle. But, so, A, it is a chance for you, you know, one-off one guest characters are... I mean, they're exactly what they sound like. They're very disposable characters or characters who generally, not always, there are times where they might, but generally don't have a huge impact. Guest characters returning are an instant way to, I mean, guest characters like, like, like recurring guest characters are almost invariably favorites of viewers. And there is nothing to get to 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 pump up uh, a viewer's excitement, quite like the return of that fan favorite guest character. Like I can't name any show that's what that that happened. I mean, uh, I will. I am not going to pretend that I haven't gone back through Star Trek and only watched the Q episodes. What are you right. talking about? That would be exactly. silly. I would never. Or, like, or I think of I think of not necessarily guest characters, but guest actors in Mash. Um, uh, why can't I think? Harry Morgan uh, mm -hmm. guested mm -hmm. like as three different characters before he came back as a full time cast member. Right. Or like uh, Game of Thrones, anytime Olena Tyrell shows up, you know yeah. that the, you know that a shit's about to get real, <laughs> and uh, b somebody's about to get their psyche ripped apart, uh, and, and and that the audience just got really excited. Um, but the other thing, the, the thing that I really appreciate as far as <clears throat> guest characters, that's a cool part. Um, and that is something that a, that a writer can use to, to if they feel like a story is like, you know, you don't want to do this gratuitously, but occasionally there's nothing wrong with, oh shit, I'm not going to go from here. Throw in the old guest character, bring them back. Mm -hmm. But I really like guest characters in that they are a great example of the fact that the world keeps going outside of the outside of the the field of vision of your party um because you know these characters when they left they were in a certain place in life and things were going on when they come back invariably things have changed they have grown just like the party has grown they have new new friendships, new relationships, all that kind of stuff. But where, as you see this in increments, you know, uh, the little bits at a time, so it doesn't feel like that level of advancement. Mm -hmm. When somebody comes back in and they've gone, you know, from a D&D &D aspect, from like level 7 to level 12, it reminds you that, oh yeah, Remember how uh, how low we were way back when. 
and it gives this idea of this larger world around you that is still moving even when you when when you're not there so that's what i've always loved about uh, guest character for me um and i apologize if i repeat anything jack said for whatever reason my adhd decided that i just wasn't going to pay attention to half the things he said <laughs> it's okay that's normal standard operating procedure I, and it wasn't even like an intentional thing it's just like i'm listening i'm listening i'm listening <laughs> then i realize you've been talking and i haven't been listening right <laughs> um but uh I, I love guest characters as uh, conceptually in, 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 in just about anything because it provides a way to challenge or build upon the beliefs or the 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 personalities of the primary characters in ways that is difficult when the only people they're ever really interacting with are non-essential or enemies. Yep. Um, you can't. It, it's really hard to challenge the beliefs of your main characters when the only other differing belief is the people that they're killing for having different beliefs, um, whatever that belief structure may be. But with guest characters, you can have for just as an example, uh, one that you guys can go back and listen to or watch uh, in Grand Terra Adventures. We had Aldolfo uh, joined the party for a little while, who was a bard from from Luxuria. Uh, and who had very definitive thoughts about how disposable, you know, gang members can be. Yep. And some of the party agreed with him. Most of the party didn't. And we got <laughs> to sort of experience the sharpening of those beliefs on each other and see just how that sort of created conflict within the party, but not in a way that could be resolved as it normally is. That explains so much because... My character joined Grand Terra after Adolfo had already been present. I thought they were just always that dysfunctional. Oh, they were. They oh, were. Okay. But it really, it really brought it up sharper. <laughs> but, yeah, like... He just exacerbated it. Okay. Selena was marginally better at working with the party before that point. <laughs> or at least... She had not dove quite as far into the deep end of her obsession at that point. And you, so you can introduce this character that is already at the place that, you know, Selena yep. is heading towards. Uh, and then you have some conflict and some character growth there. Another example I can think of for a slightly more positive one would be like if you have a character whose family was killed by dragons as is a fairly standard D&D background trope that I've never actually done for a character of mine that I kind of want to. But um, uh, you, have a char you have a person whose family was killed by dragons and then you introduce them to a guest character or whatever uh, who is, you know, half dragon and yep. is out there campaigning for dragons' rights. <laughs> you know, it's like how not dragons aren't all just you know, evil death murder machines. You can have that sort of conflict of interest within the party without it being a violent conflict. And that can potentially alter the way that character views what has ostensibly been their huge backstory tragedy. For Hashtag not all dragons. Yeah. You know, you can, you can use guest characters to challenge the perceptions of both the audience and the, the participants. Uh, 
in ways that are not more 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 nonviolent, potentially more safe, based solely on the fact of who they are. Um, in I think like like sort of like in Agents of Shield, using uh, using guest Inhumans to both show off uh, you know the variety of Inhumans in the Marvel mm-hmm. universe, and also to give a different perspective on them. You know when we're bouncing back and forth between the way S.H.I.E.L.D. interacts with Inhumans versus the way the public interacts with Inhumans, things like that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that, I think that, that's, that's, that is probably my favorite way to deal with guest characters, is to bring them in as a sort of a narrative chopping block, as it were. To, like, this, is a, this character is a hard stop on this particular thing that maybe you've been a little bit flexible on. How do you react to that? Um, and and helping those characters to grow. So, Zara and Kashal come back, and there is a big reunion uh, as each of these individual guest characters has met half the party. They now then meet the other half of the party as the entire party is together. There is a lot of uh, flirting over, uh, a lot of flirting over Keyleth. Uh, which results in Keyleth feeling uh, <laughs> gloriously awkward and uncomfortable. Yes, and also randomly calling Vex over and pushing her over to the ground for no reason. Uh, also, which also sparked some, you know, some some interactions between Vex and Keyleth that we'll get to later. But <clears throat> after an uncomfortably long period of chit chat, Vanessa clears her throat. And basically says, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, to which the uh, party begins to do their traveling salesman shtick, is what I'm going to call it from here on out. Because it's effectively what they are. They're trying to sell Vanessa on the threat of the Chroma Conclave. Uh, and ask for help. I mean, they're, they're missionaries, <clears throat> but missionaries toward... Dragon killing. Dragon killing missionaries, yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, they begin to they begin to unravel the events that they have experienced in the past few days, uh, at which point Vanessa says they, they they start off with a soft sell, going, Hey, how would you feel about killing something that's really dangerous and, you know, potentially a threat to the world? To which Vanessa responds, if people pay me for it, sure. And then they sort of build and build and build and build before awkwardly coming out with, yeah, there's a bunch of dragons that are destroying things all over the place and we need help. At which point, Vanessa... Yep, go ahead. Which is an interesting dynamic because generally in a lot of fiction, whoever the protagonists are, are the problem solvers. And I've always loved the beat where the protagonists either are confronted with a problem that they are very much aware is way too big for them to handle, or they're confronted with just a sheer number of problems that they do not have enough capacity to handle. You know, they could handle maybe three of them, but we have 147 of them now. And seeing the change in dynamic for a group who's used to being the solution suddenly having to figure out oh wait no we need to go find the solution now and that's always interesting to see it shift yep yep 
Um, after getting to the point with Vanessa, Vanessa responds with, Sorry, can't help you, but maybe someone can. Uh, and after paying Kashaw and uh, 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 Zara for their assistance, take them down <clears throat> to the Temple of Ayun below the below the Slayer's Take. That I think we've been to before, haven't we? When they were first. Yeah, that's where they got their tattoos. When they yeah, when they first joined the Slayer's Take, we we return to Osisa, the patron of Ayun associated with the Slayer's Take. Uh, who and they again traveling salesman spiel Osisa on the thread of the dragons uh, as well as well we'll get to that in a second so first they first they, they, they tell Osisa you know hey bunch of dragons killing things help plus um, to which Osisa says yeah no I can't help you but maybe uh, <laughs> she tells them about her spout her her her, her mate uh, whose name and location she does not give them, but gives them vague clues as to how to find them in order to acquire that name and location on their own as being part of the test for worthiness as to whether or not her mate will help them after telling them about things called the Vestiges of Divergence, which are relics wielded when the gods walked and fought alongside their creations. Long time ago in Amman, long time ago in Exandria... Uh, the gods walked around and they left toys behind, apparently. Uh, I don't think we learned much about the divergence at this point. Nope. Um, now that comes in a little later. But Osisa basically explains that um, there was a war of divergence. Uh, the vestiges were were uh, objects of great power that were used in those wars against the gods. Many of them have been buried, entombed, lost, forgotten. Uh, few that are recovered are passed down through bloodlines, through symbols of power, and seats of great political importance, but any information beyond that is not available at this time. Please check in again later. Um... They continue to ask for a little bit more information, but that's pretty much all that Osisa uh, has the information on, because objects of that power are sort of generally hidden from view, either on their either on their own or by the people that possess them. Uh, she also indicates that Vasselheim has withstood, has withstood uh, many manner of destruction and cataclysm by being insular and isolated. So while they can go around Vasselheim asking for help, it's unlikely that they will receive very much. Uh, and then passes on the information about her mate and how they can possibly find him or find uh, them. I don't think she actually refers to them by any pronouns. Uh, south of the Frostweald and the mountain range that guards it. Uh, indicating that uh, then they sort of shift gears uh, and ask Osisa about Vecna, which goes over well. Because Ayun... <laughs> because foreshadowing. Because Ayun, and thereby extension Osisa, hates Vecna. Um, Can't imagine why. You know, the god of knowledge, you know, is sort of... The god of secrets is sort of anathema to the god of knowledge, basically. Um, and they explain the goings-on in Whitestone. Again, using this as some sort of attempted bargain for assistance that has already been granted, the players have a bit of a issue with 
only getting small amounts of information. Um, or the characters, I should say, have uh, have a bit of issue with only getting small amounts of information. Uh, Osisa explains that the ziggurat ben that the ziggurat found beneath Whitestone was at one point a temple to Ayun that has been corrupted by Vecna. Uh, and before she can say anything more, something draws her attention. And we learn that the Chroma Conclave had ventured east past Westrun, over the Lucidian Ocean, beyond Wildmount, and to the Drimalt Ravine, where she watches them destroy Draconia the, and the floating islands of Draconia. Uh, eventually, her uh, she starts bleeding from the nose and can't continue on, but we learn that Draconia has been destroyed at a distance, which... I liked in particular because it's a really good way of saying of the GM saying, "Hey guys, time is still going while you're wasting time." Uh -huh. uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And I love when I love when stories do that when you can find a way to point out that things are still happening. The the plot does not pause. Yeah. For exposition always. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's. And, and and you know, especially not after you've already received a certain amount of information and you're you're inclined to continue trying to dig for more in the same location. This is a, like using Osisa Osisa being able to see things happening in the distance to relay this information that they can't possibly know yet is a really good way of reminding them that you've received information, you should probably get going now. Um this also spells the end of Osisa's scrying at the moment, as she has gone to the edge of her capabilities. Uh, Osisa tells the party that she will look into the Vecna issue, but for now she must rest, and that they must return once they have once they have acquired the vestiges of divergence and proved themselves. Uh, Osisa retreats to the shadows, and the party continue and and the party continues to stand there, musing about what they should do, until Vanessa once again clears her throat, reminding them that they should probably head back out. Uh, after bickering for a while, the group eventually decides to turn their attentions to Vanessa and beg, borrow, and steal anything they possibly can from her. <laughs> which gets them, as you do which gets them a couple of potions and a stern reminder that she did just pay them a lot of gold <laughs> and that there are markets available the party then head to the quad roads to visit to, to find a potion shop to get more potions um Zara and Cash attempting one last time to persuade Vanessa to give additional resources and failing. And as they leave out, heading towards the quad roads, uh, Cash talking to Zara and saying, hey, you know, we could just leave this problem to them since it's their problem. And Zara convincing him to continue on with it for a while because the world needs saving and they can't continue to rest in pe to rest peacefully if the world gets destroyed. Cash, Legit. Cash here being the reluctant hero of the group. <laughs> I mean, I mean that Cash is, is generally the thing. reluctant every. It is generally his thing, yes. Um, and 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 fortunately, in this particular case, Cash does the amount of reluctant hero that is fine, and not the amount of reluctant hero that gets irritating after a while. 
Right. <laughs> For those of you that don't know what I mean, saying saying no to the call to action twice is fine. Saying no to the call to action every single time there's a call to action, no matter what it is, is annoying. And it's a thing that I think some writers seem to think makes a character edgy. Or it like shows shows that a character doesn't care about anything but themselves. But there comes a certain point where that just stops being interesting and starts yep. being a bad character. We all have time. Yep. <laughs> yes. That the, the uh, there are yep. characters in yep. the wheel of time that Randolph, are you can fuck right the fuck off. <laughs> Randall Thor, in particular, yes, is guilty of that. Yep, Randall Thor needs to get his head out of his ass. Uh, so yeah, if you're, it's 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 perfectly fine to write a character who doesn't want to just go with the flow. Yeah. But eventually, that character either needs to go with the flow, or be gone because they've decided <laughs> or, they stopped going with the flow. Or not be the central character of your story. They cannot continually <laughs> go with the flow while not wanting to go with the flow. It doesn't work after a while. Like, eventually Tony Stark gives in and listens to the other people's plans. Right. <laughs> he can't just... He doesn't just keep bitching about it the whole time. Unlike Star-Lord. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah. They eventually, they, they, they head out to the quad roads where they go out to the potion cellar. A potion cellar who is familiar to uh, all those watching. <laughs> uh, the luckiest potion cellar in the world until this moment. Uh, although before that, really quick before that, there was a really funny bit between Vex and Vax that I wanted to point out of Vex getting upset on Vax's behalf at Kashaw's existence. Yep. And oh. also the fact that Kashaw and Zara keep fawning over Keyleth and not her. Yep. <laughs> Which leads to the best line of the episode, for me at least, of amongst the amongst the party, not of other characters, because there is another character right. that comes up soon, but of uh, of well yeah, you're fucking gorgeous too, but what the hell am I gonna do with that? And he <laughs> says back to his to his sister. <laughs> And then I mean, walks away. I love so for me for for the whole of Critical Role of Vox Machina. My absolute favorite relationship dynamic is between Vex and Keyleth because it is so complex and at times con contradictory and. Uh, full of of really it's sort it's it sort of serves as the spoke of the wheel of all of the other of the entire party mm -hmm. vax and um, keyleth or vex and keyleth vex and keyleth okay i just wanted to clarify yes sister sister and druid not brother and druid yes um and that, you know, generally it does somewhat revolve around Vax for obvious reasons. But, you know, it, it, there there's that, the early on parts of it of, ew, you know, 
you're that's my brother and he, she's being really protective of him but at the same time she there's definitely a a even almost in the same breath as when she expresses those sorts of things is very you know like the way that she's reacting to to uh uh, uh to Zara Zara and Cash here where yeah that's you know Vax and and and, and Keyleth is, is gross to me and hell no but that's the one it should be Mm-hmm. And screw all of the outside. Like it, it is such an interesting and well played dynamic that is never overdone, um, and and morphs in a very realistic, subtle way over time. And there's a lot of different ways you can read into the emotion of this interaction that I mm-hmm. really love. The one in particular being, it's okay when Vax and Keyleth flirt. It's right. not okay when other people come between those two and flirt yep. instead. I'm the one that gets flirted with by other people, not cute. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> so it's like... That's the thing is there's so much of, like, what who Vex is as a person. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what could really, in a lot of other other stories, would be just sort of a very facile on the surface kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Here it's really, really good, and it's very telling to uh, uh, who Vex is. Well, and yeah. and I and I like it because it's it. There are a couple of different ways that you can take that that line of thought, and most commonly writers will take that line of thought as Vex being sort of self-aggrandizing, but in this right. case, I feel it's much more Vex being protective. Yep, because she knows how Keyleth handles attention. Right. And that's why she prefers to be the one being hit on because she handles attention very well. And Keyleth, yep. at least up to this point, has not. Then there's also the, the other side of Keyleth liking this attention, even though she feels flustered by it. And it's, right. it's such a really it's such a really lovely relationship between the two of them. I really enjoy yep. watching it. Yeah, and, and honestly, the <clears throat> dynamic get between those three characters is particularly specially conducted in that both Vax and Keyleth, their 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 players play them very much what you see is what you get. Hearts on sleeves, that kind of thing. Whereas Lara plays Vex much closer to the chest. She yeah. does not show her cards easily. She shows a couple cards, but never the ones that she is keeping closest to her, <clears throat> except when the circumstances demand it, except when something is actually on the line that she cares about. And that, I think, is is kind of what really accentuates all three of them, is Lara's ability to let both of them just sort of have everything hanging out for the world to see while she is sort of the go-between of both the the protector and the background character, in a sense, that really gives them the backdrop they need in order for all three characters to really, to really pop out to the audience. Yep. 
Yeah. No, it is a it is a wonderfully complex and realized relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and is definitely I, I agree one of my favorite relationships in the show is between the three, between the sibling, the twins, and 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 Keyleth. Yeah. Um, and also Vex offers to kill Shaw for Vex. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, you like her. Want me to kill him? <laughs> as you, as you, as you suggest when, you know, in such situations, I mean, that's not normal. <laughs> uh, so that, 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 that whole conversation occurs. It ends with, it ends with Vax being like, yes, you're, you're attractive, but I, you're my sister. You're fucking right. weird. Walks off, and the group gets to their potion seller, uh, who they previously, who, who Grog previously haggled with uh, during uh, Armentate Pyra. Mm-hmm. Um, Vex remembers him, attempts to take over negotiations from Grog. Uh, at which point, with which Vex attempts to help convinced Grog to let Vex uh, do this. Grog eventually steps down and the group proceed to... (laughs) The best way I can describe this is Chicago Badlands this person into... (laughs) See, it, it starts out as a slightly awkward negotiation that immediately takes a heft into blatant extortion. Yeah. <laughs> Vex tries to really fast. Vex asks what his mo- what all of his potions cost, then undercuts him, fails, and then the entire party gang up to threaten his life and family. <laughs> in order to get what Vex later realizes is a massive blatant like theft of a product like Vex starts off trying to get a good deal and then ends up just stealing the shit from him basically more or less Uh, and then especially when later realized that uh, what they ended up bargaining for she thought was more than what they actually ended up getting but was still would have been ridiculously more of a theft than what she already got this was a this was another one of those scenes where the moral the morals of the party are flexible <laughs> yep and Zara and Kasha are apparently fully on board with threatening to kill a merchant for his potions um, so, I don't think this group has ever been shining beacons of morality, right? So there's and when it, when I, it comes to tabletop RPGs, there's there's a fairly famous quote that says, "Given standard economic pressures, all alignments tend toward lawful evil." Yep. Um, I exhibit think- A. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think you know, grading this on a D, grading their alignments on a on a D and D scale. I fully believe at this point that there was no actual intent. Like 
they were never going to follow through on that threat. Does that make them good people for having threatened that? No. But it certainly makes it seem at least a little bit better. They legitimately said, how's your family doing? Yes. No, that's fucked up. How are your kids? That is fully fucked up. That said... This is actually pretty benign for a D&D group running across a merchant who previously gouged them super, one of their party members, super, super hard. Oh, yeah. Like, the standard reaction to this would be follow him until he gets to wherever he lives that is not in the public place and either brutalize or rob or something like that. Something between a light maiming and outright murder. Right. This was, you know, they threatened him. That's not so bad. Comparatively speaking. <laughs> and we are grading on a D&D curve here. Yes, we are. We absolutely are. Grading on a very, very steep curve. Ah, <clears throat> anyways. After threatening this man to within an inch of his life, they make off with a variety of potions. Um, uh, uh, sells him some literal junk <laughs> and continue off, heading next, some of them, to talk to a man about some black powder. Yep. <laughs> so... And I'm going to be up front here. Minor in minor. I did not do a full critical role wiki style summary. These are in bullet points. Did it so... sound like I did one? L- yes. Huh. <laughs> a little bit. Um, but yes. So uh, uh, the party <clears throat> runs across uh, a victor uh, who we remember from the last time they were in Vasselheim. Um, and he has character progression. (laughs) Again, we return to the idea of this is very much what I was thinking when I was talking about that. Not that Zara and, and, and Cash don't have the same thing going on after a fashion, but Victor is the perfect example of the returning guest character. Different kind of guest character, but still, who... Reminds you, oh yeah, shit happens when we're not here. Because <laughs> uh, he's missing some body part. Heard um, from my mistakes. <laughs> um, but I mean, essentially, the gist of this, uh, of this, you know, it's Victor, and Victor is a lot of Victor is always fun. Victor is is there's a reason why he's everybody's favorite NPC. Yep. Uh, he's hilarious. Uh, um, he uh, Mercer does a stellar job with him, um, and, and and yet he's also very valuable. Like he's not just a joke character. But the significant thing that comes out of this, besides you know the the purchase of some 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 black powder, is we learn that he spoke with a nice woman a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, who also who 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 also bought a lot of black powder? Who is of course 
Ripley, who had escaped uh, from 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 the group back in back when they were freeing Whitestone. Um, there's uh, there are a couple other really good moments in this. I think my personal favorite is Victor. Uh, sudden fascination with Vex will be the nice way to put it. <laughs> um, uh, uh, which which Vex <clears throat> being Vex is very capably uses to convince Victor not to say anything to Ripley should they should she ever return. Um, but the party the, 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 the uh, that group exits that heads back um, at this point the, the rest of the party is 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 back at the tavern uh, and very drunk Keyleth is super 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 drunk um, and is <laughs> there's a reason why dr- so I want to talk about these kinds of scenes a little bit because this is a staple of 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 narrative fiction of role playing the tavern scene the scene where somebody gets drunk the scene where multiple people get drunk and it's one of my favorite things when you strike the right tone uh-huh. because you're talking about a bunch of people who are uh, we're, we're talking about heroes in a fantasy setting they're generally pretty either good natured or stoic one of those two like if they are, if they are the depressed like edgelordy type then they don't openly talk about their problems much and that's a good thing because if that's all they did they would get really irritating quickly um these scenes are always great for a way for these characters to really unload some of their emotional baggage like we see in this situation because Keela is super fucked up right now not just <laughs> not just in terms of alcohol but in terms of the loss of her people mm-hmm. um and it plays out really nicely i i really enjoy the way that because and 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 credit this to Marisha. She swings very much realistically, frankly, between like the alcohol, the 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 fun, like funny sort of thing, and to the really depressed thing. Um. Uh, so, yeah, that's something that I that I very much appreciated in this scene. Um. Yeah, and there's there's a unique aspect to those moments when you yep. can take some uh, take a character and through whatever means, you know, and you know, different different properties do it in different variations. Alcohol is a good go-to. Sometimes you, you know, eat the wrong type of frog in the marsh, whatever it is you know to 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 let the character go through that <clears throat> that inhibition lowering process to where the stuff that they usually keep bottled on the inside is suddenly out for everybody to see and interact with yep um and sometimes that's extremely helpful 
you know, when you're writing a character and you know what's going on in their head, but you, you haven't found a way to put it on the page so that the reader can see what's going on in their head, too. Sometimes this is what you go to. Yeah. Uh, and and it can work extremely well when done done properly. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, as long as there have been humans, when they're having emotions, there will also be drinking. So, yes. you know. It yeah, fits. Absolutely. We also we also tend to have a uh, a larger than average supply of drunks in our financial film games, so we might be biased in that in that regard. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I have absolutely no idea what you're speaking. So the people who play like fifty percent of them. The thing that makes um, me laugh is that the the people in financial films that play the biggest drunks are the people that don't drink regularly. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> It's like because they're the ones that know they're missing out. <laughs> I don't have to drink. I have PCs to do that for me. <laughs> and the people that do drink regularly do not play drunks. <laughs> I wonder if there's some implicit storytelling there. <laughs> Maybe. Probably. Maybe. There's probably some so, some some opportunity for personal introspection. But let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> uh no um so uh, this then transitions to um somebody walks in for about half a second sees the group and 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 quickly exits and it is Kern it is the person that Grog previously fought Twice? Twice. Twice, Because he yeah. won the second time. Yes, yep. that's right. Um, ripped, his, ripped his lip uh, off. Yep. yep. Grog chases him down, uh, not to beat his ass again, but to ask about Earthbreaker Groon. Uh, we learn that, that, that we learn a little bit of, of Kern's what he's been uh, what he's been up to in the meantime, again, back to that sort of recurring character thing, uh, saying that he talked to Groon. He talked to Groon to try and get training, but was told that he was too angry of a person. Um, he had tried, but 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 it's too angry. And his task is now going to be to test someone else. We call this foreshadowing, foe. Mm. Um, they do sort of a mutual show of uh, of respect. Uh, uh, there's a nice little bit of, of a scene that I I love here with them. Talking about how much it sucks to be barbarian. <laughs> um, uh, a grog asks about uh, where they would go to recruit men at arms for their eventual assault on the Chroma Conclave. Uh, Kern suggests the Platinum Sanctuary. Uh, he apologizes for. Basically, they make good with each other. Uh, Meanwhile, back at the tavern, uh, 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 Zara and and uh, where did I miss? I missed one. Oh, oh no! First, Vax walks over to Kasha and tries to make nice with him, and proceeds to compliment him. And Kasha is confused and thinks that he's hitting on him, <laughs> um, which is good humor. Uh, 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 Vax tr basically 
goes to to sort of uh, recruit Kasha's help for everything that they're dealing with. Meanwhile, Zara and Vex are talking with Keelix, uh, Keelith about her romantic situation right now. Um, which again is another nice, uh, nice bit with uh, uh, Vex and Keelith. Um, Vex gets the opportunity to be the protective sister here, um, but it, it plays out really well. Uh, and Vex ends up caught in a closet, uh, which makes for a a, a, a wonderful metaphor. For <laughs> um, especially since basically soon after Kesha basically confirms that at the best he is probably about a one on the Kinsey scale. Um, sorry, end up a one on the what scale? Do you not know what the Kinsey scale is? I do not know what the Kinsey scale is. Oh, the Kinsey scale is the spectrum of sexuality. Developed by a guy named Kinsey back in the what was it, sixties? No, uh, uh, late forties. Late forties, yeah. Um, it's a late zero to six scale. Mm -hmm. Zero means you are exclusively heterosexual. Six means you are exclusively homosexual. At best, Kishaza one. Okay. Look yep. up the Kinsey scale, folks. Learn your learn your LGBTQ history. Um, Nineteen forty eight. <laughs> there you go. There was a very good movie. Well, I will say there was a pretty good movie uh, uh, about Kinsey starring. Yeah, who was that? That's gonna bug me now. Uh, I mean, it was Neeson, literally it? just called Kinsey. Wasn't it? Wasn't it Liam Neeson? I want to say it was Liam Neeson, yeah. I love, uh, yeah, I lo yeah, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was Liam, Liam Neeson. Neeson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the ratings are zero, th zero through X. Zero is exclusively heterosexual. One is predominantly heterosexual, only incidentally homosexual. Two is predominantly heterosexual, but more than incidentally homosexual. Three is equally yep. heterosexual and homosexual. Four is <clears throat> predominantly homosexual, but more than incidentally heterosexual. Five is predominantly homosexual, only incidentally heterosexual. Six is exclusively homosexual, and X is no sociosexual contacts or reaction. I mean, X sort of, it's not, it's not like that is after six. It's just there's nowhere to place that. It's sort of right. outside it's, the bounds it, of what it's, it's. This is a two-ended scale. Yes. But sex is not only two things. Yes. I mean, it was the 40s. Right. They were, they were trying. <laughs> they were, we give them credit for effort. <laughs> they get a participation. I mean, to be fair, without... As 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 we take our greatest diversion yet, I just love that it's more than incidentally homosexual. Yes. Um, to be fair, without the Kinsey scale, we wouldn't be where we are now in terms. Yeah, of no, it's very important stepping stone yeah. on on the path to where we are currently, yeah. and hopefully we will someday transcend even where we are currently into yep. greater and better. Yes. 
I I I I love the term incidentally related to sexuality. <laughs> I mean, there Inci- are people. I'm just gonna say only um, incidentally homosexual. <laughs> I'm not gonna say who my cover band is for incidentally homosexual. <laughs> Mine is bare naked ladies. Okay, that's like, fair. Incidentally, homosexual is a bare naked ladies cover band. That's a good one. Um, I mean, I was gonna get, I was gonna say ACDC, Not gonna lie. <laughs> that's also not bad. Yeah. Not anyways, Kashaw's a one on the scale, apparently. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Kashaw's a one at highest. Kashaw is predominantly heterosexual and only incidentally homosexual. <laughs> uh, maybe a zero. We don't know, but right. but but he's definitely not a two. Um, anyways, <laughs> best diversion yet. Um, so the group heads off to the Platinum Sanctuary, uh, where they, you know, the, Grog has been told that that's a place for potentially getting people. Plus, Lady Kima's there, and that's their main reason for going there. Um, they go in, they get met, met by High Bearer Vord. Um, they make their case, and Vord basically says, in eh, no thanks. I mean, he, there's a lot more context. He says that he had a vision, he felt the presence of Bahamut's enemy, um, and there's a nice little bit of, there, there, there's, there's some foreshadowing fun here, um, and a little bit of symbolism in his vision. Um, but that they were not able to find any presence of Tiamat or Tiamat's realm uh, in, in what was going on. And they have to help Vasselheim. And, you know, the rest of the world can just deal. That's not the exact way he says it, but that's how the party interprets it. Uh-huh. Everyone um, else will be fine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, everyone, not everyone else will be fine. Everyone else will be fucked, but they're not my problem. Right. Which isn't what he's saying, to be fair. Like, I I, I always love these kinds of debates because I fully understand where Vord's coming from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has finite resources. He can only protect so much. And he can't just, you know, these, these, these... Worst word in a fantasy setting, adventurers come and say, you need to help us. And he's got a lot that he's dealing with. And he does make a very good point that if he sent people out to help, he could very well endanger the city. Um, But of course, to the, to, to the adventuring party... It sounds like I don't care about everybody else. I only care about my city. Um, I, I always really appreciate those debate or the, those situations because I know we're not supposed to sympathize with the Vord style character, but I understand he's got a lot going on. Yeah, and and he also has i would say cuz i'm i'm kind of on team vord here too specifically okay so despite my own complicated interactions with religion in the real world 
Right. Um, you know, he's he is a ranking clergy member of a definitively sacred site and has more or less been saddled with the responsibility of ensuring that that, you know, stays intact. If he goes flying off or start diverting resources to something on an entirely different continent, I don't know that Bahamut is going to be best pleased with him. Right? And... Please! <laughs> Please! Alliance of ridiculously powerful evil dragons... Pay attention to us, the human servants of the God of Good Dragon. It's not going to go well. Right, not going to go well. And, you know, from Vord's perspective, I mean, despite thinking that they're basically gods, they're not gods. So you have a whole bunch of, you've got a mishmash of marginally to severely disreputable people come in and say, hey, there's a big problem over here. Okay, I sympathize, but no is basically the responsible position for him to take. Yep. And they're going to interpret that how they're going to interpret that. Sure. Doesn't change that that's the responsible position for him to take. (laughs) Right. So yeah, um, so basically he says to help that, that they will help in any way they can, but they are not offering their army to go battle the travel out to the, across uh, across the continent to to battle. We're not abandoning our right. post to, to right. deal with dragons that aren't here. He does offer a champion, uh, a platinum knight. I may have typed this wrong, but Udair? Yep, I think so. Udair? Doesn't matter. His name literally doesn't matter because he gets knocked out by Kima. Right. <laughs> he like... doesn't. I think he might get two words out. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Udair. 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 Was a tall, okay. wide-chested, masculine man with a very thin pencil mustache. And that's all we know about him. U-D-I-R-E. Okay, so I spelled it right. You spelled it right, yeah. Udir, Udir, U-D-I-R-E. But yeah, so he is brought out so Kima can basically knock him him on his ass. Right, Um, curb stomping. Yes, which is the big fan, you know, the the big viewer cheer moment. Um, which plays very effectively. She dem- basically demands to be allowed to go. Um, the party agrees. Ford is like, fine. Um, and then they ask about the vestiges of Divert. Uh, Vord does not have a ton of information here. Uh, he does know that, that there are relics from before the second spark. Uh, that they slew the children of the dark, but that he doesn't have anything really solid to go on outside of the fact that there are at least a dozen. Apparently a lot of the, a lot of that knowledge was lost uh, some time ago. And that is 
pretty much all that he can offer them at that point. But it's a few more tidbits, and it does give uh, a Matt the opportunity to drop a little bit more of, hey, you, could, you know, I mean, they asked about it, but still, hey, you should pay attention to this. These are important. Mm-hmm. And that's where my typing left off. So I assume that's where the uh, the third of the uh, the, the middle. Pretty much, yeah. Because at this point, they've they've gotten about as much as they can in terms of information, both from Osisa and from Vord. Um, and they're starting to pick up on the whole. All right, time to move on. Um, which is sort of Kima's perspective as well. You know, they they leave the the Platinum Sanctuary. They head out. Uh, you know, they have their their big reunion with Kima, um, who they fill in on basically everything that's been happening. Um, there's a good bit of talk about Western and everything that apparently went down there because that was the other place that the the Chroma Conclave had destroyed, and it's also kind of Kima's hometown, her original temple, and that sort of thing. Um, which is an excellent way to sort of loop Kima in as she's not just a friend who wants to hang out with her friends, but she's a fully realized character who has a personal investment in this as well. And likes killing dragons. And also likes killing bad dragons. I mean, yep. being a paladin of Bahamut, you know, sort of comes with the territory. Um, there's also a, a, a lot of, of signaling here about Kima's a history with Alora as well, because that's another one of her primary concerns. Um, so we get to explore at least, or at least foreshadow a bit of that as well. And then it's off to uh, wrap up the rest of what they can find in the city before heading out to sort of cover the rest of the stuff they need to do and you know because they they have a huge list of things that they need to do and they're having to narrow down all right sure we need to we need to check in with this that the other all these other op objectives and stuff and start trying to figure out what our next point is where do we start first which turns out to be the uh the braving grounds um specifically the trial forge um, harking back to Grog's conversation with Kern and the idea that Grog wants to go talk to Earthbreaker Groom and so they sort of start heading down that direction um, the the setup for everything is really fantastically portrayed here um you know they're they're narrated down the braving ground into the uh the trial forge and it's it's an imposing environment to say the least and as they enter grog sort of taking the lead because this is kind of his own personal quest uh and journey that he wants to he wants to speak to the earthbreaker again and it very quickly to trial by combat um the 
there's the fighting pit here in the center, as you might imagine, for for uh, a, a cord temple, one that's that's based around the concepts of battle and training and martial prowess and that sort of thing. And so Grog pretty much hits the sand and starts walking in and Groon immediately just meets him head on and starts asking him these questions while also beating the shit out of him. Um, for, and, the, and the crux of, of Groon's interrogation for Grog is you find your strength. Um, and he's he's instructed to to pick two of his his companions to to support him in this, and he uh, he grabs he calls out Vax and Scanlan, who are thrown into the pit by the other monks. Uh, and there's this fantastic sequence of one monk going toe to toe with three opponents none of whom are of his school of combat and he's handling it just fine um there uh, the the impressive nature of it is really well conducted uh the the narration the storytelling mechanics everything in there if if you if you want a class in how to make combat narrative in nature while still keeping the tactics and the the abilities at play, this is a great bit to watch. Yep. Um, I, I absolutely love the the nuances and and you know, not everybody's D and D game is going to be critical role because not every dungeon master is Matt Mercer, but also very specifically, not everybody's players have been doing storytelling for their full-time job for the past 10 years. Also, right. to be clear, not every fight is this fight. And not every fight is this fight. Like, even, in, even in Critical Role, not every fight is like this one. Right. This oh, one, yeah, for sure. Right, yeah. And and there, there are plenty of fights in Critical Role where it's like, all right, where are you guys? How fast can you beat the shit out of these things? Excellent, we move on. You know, um, this one, though, is is meant to accentuate aspects of character and they do it extremely well, um, you know, and and to his credit, Grog actually comes up with different answers every time he's repeatedly questioned strength from where does your strength come from? Um, and then eventually, as the fight reaches its conclusion, comes up with a good answer because, as we all know, the weapons were the friends we met along the way. Um, and at which point the fight ceases because the lesson has been taught, which is a very sort of, you know, traditional monk kind of thing. Um, and the sort of ultimate form of the episode then it you've been and and i like the way at least for me as i'm watching it it sort of underscores some of the the sort of the themes that have been running through this whole whole arc of the arc of the narrative up to this point is that 
all right, you've got this immense threat in this in the Chroma Conclave. You're looking for things that can help you defeat them. You're given news and knowledge and even some fairly clear direction, both from Vord and eventually from Groon, I believe, as well end of the episode of where you can at least start to look for these vestiges that are going to be extremely powerful tools in the right hands but it's going to be the people it's going to be the the comrades that you surround yourself with it's going to be the unity of the group and it's going to be your friends that actually get this done and that's sort of where and that's where Matt kind of cuts the episode, which I thought was a really solid narrative for yeah. finding a decent place to land the plane on on this on this session. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, no, it, I think that's <clears throat> it's a really good way of and whenever you're uh, finding finding a good place to end a, to end a, an episode or end a story is a really hard thing to do. And I think uh while that wasn't necessarily the, you know, Grog saying, it's my friends, and then cut to black, uh, wasn't the way it ended. It's still, that's where you're at emotionally by the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. It's a really good place yeah. to be. Yeah. Because uh, this, this has very much been sort of a, an information-gathering episode for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of exposition this time around. Yeah, this, is, this was a, you know, okay, here, we know the threat. Let's talk to the people that can help us figure out what to do. And then by the end of it, they figured out what to do. And they've also figured out, or at least Grog has, the most important aspect of this is doing it with backup and not alone. You can't mm-hmm. you can't face off against the dragon by yourself. No one can 1v1 a dragon. <laughs> um, well, not with that attitude. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> no one can 1v1 a dragon. <laughs> it is fair. If you are level 20 and it is a wormling... You absolutely can 1v1 a dragon. No one can 1v1 an ancient red dragon from beyond the fire elemental plane. If you are Sirik and you have ascended to godhood. <laughs> and this is why I don't talk to people at gaming stores anymore. <laughs> Anyways. But yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was a very satisfying episode. Yeah. Um... And and granted, I'm one of those people watches Critical Role every week, but does sort of mentally check out during the combat sequences for the most part. So this one was really right up my alley specific. Alright. So yeah, that was Return of Vasselheim. Uh, we'll be back next time with episode 44 of Critical Role. Uh, which is... Shit Gets Real. That's the name of the episode, whatever it is. <laughs> the, the Sunken Tomb. Tomb. Yep. Shit Gets Real, though, which, is, is, is a very good subtitle for that one. The Sunken Tomb, which has, I believe, one of my... Which is one of my favorite... Uh, has one of my favorite character moments between Grog and Kashaw. It's a good moment. It's a good moment. It's a good moment, yep. It's a solid moment. And we'll get to that next time. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.